Hello dealers, I'm Lynn Wolf, and thanks for joining us for the latest edition of our Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast series. We're talking with Cleo Franklin, who's retiring after eight years with Mahindra North America. Franklin has more than 30 years in the industry, previously working for John Deere and New Holland. I've interviewed Cleo several times, but his retirement gave us a chance for a more candid conversation to gain his perspective on the changes in the rural equipment segment and his recommendations for how dealers can stay competitive. I would say the biggest changes is consolidation of dealerships, yeah, along with the need for dealers to invest and shift to build a better but sustainable business model with the right resources, training, information, sophistication, and support to not just be a good dealer, but become better managers of business. Listen in as Cleo shares more about the gains and losses from consolidation, along with comments about working with dealers and things he should have done differently. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk today, Cleo. And I know the first question that that dealers are interested in and we're interested in is is why the risk, uh, decision to uh, retire at this point. Absolutely. You know, I, I owe a lot of gratitude and, and, and regard and respect from our dealers because my career, uh, the success that I've achieved would not have been able to be accomplished without the great relationship that I have with my dealers. But eight years I was at Mahindra, I've been so blessed to have so many opportunities across the, the globe uh, to, to build and assist and develop strategies. And, you know, what that has done is help increase our brand and awareness, but it's also allowed us uh, at Mahindra to become, uh, to go from unknown to known and be considered a top brand of choice. But I'll say this, I'm proud that many dealers would tell me clearly when I became a Mahindra dealer, many customers would come to our dealership with questions about who we are, but now they're asking, I want a Mahindra, they're asking to buy a Mahindra. So my decision to retire was solely driven by me. And because of those reasons that I just shared, it was a very tough decision for me to make. So I think in life you have these great windows of opportunities that come around that we must take. And my desire to pursue the many new exciting opportunities that have been at my door for a while and what I'm passionate about, I, I just decided this is the right time for me to take them on and immerse myself in Tim fully. So that's the reason for my retirement. But I will miss my dealers without question. Okay. And um, before we dive into some of the other questions uh, related to your career and just your perspective on, on the industry, um, you had talked just about the opportunities are, that are at your door. So anything you can share at this point about where you might be headed next or what kind of projects? Yes, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, my next path is just exciting and promising as my three decades in the industry. And I want to say, that although I'm retiring from Mahindra, make no mistake, I'm not retired. Uh, I'm currently working at the University of Houston, downtown Maryland, David School of Business, and that's teaching in their MBA school with their corporate program. And that's a program that partners with business executives, with the professors, it pairs the business executive with the professor to bring real world experience and application to the MBA program. I'm also going to be busy serving on several advisory boards and board of directors. And I'm currently working with two startups, uh, well, several startups as an interim CEO, COO, and CMO for some new business platforms that you will hear more about in the future. And one of these particular platforms will be connected to the rural lifestyle and agricultural equipment industry. So, 
uh, you know, I like to just say there's always more to do and, and, and more to come and just stay tuned. Okay. Well, we, we will. And uh, you'll have to keep us posted on that. And um, so let's start looking back a little bit and um, talk about really your early days within the, um, the egg industry and uh, in particular, the rural equipment market. What strikes you as some of the biggest changes from when you first started to, to right now? Lynn, I started uh, at John Deere in 1988, and my first position there was a financial service rep, which was one of the best on-the-ground positions in the learning rules that I've had. And from there, I had several positions inside and the offices from an administrative perspective uh, and leading in many different categories, but also several positions supporting the dealer, supporting the dealers at the ground level. But I, I've seen so many changes in the market that have been good for the health of the business for both manufacturer and dealer. I would say the biggest changes is consolidation of dealerships, and along with the need for dealers to invest and shift to build a better but sustainable business model with the right resources, training, information, sophistication, and support to not just be a good dealer but become better managers of business. And for me, that is the biggest change that I've seen in the industry. It's come a long way. With the idea of consolidation, there's obviously a lot of a lot of benefits uh, to that to uh, the dealer and the manufacturer. Do you see anything that's been lost with this trend of consolidation? The thing, the biggest thing that I've seen that has been lost with consolidation, and there's always a a, a loss and a gain. Now let's talk about the gain: the gain of scalability, the gain of being able to add and network your resources to take on bigger areas of responsibility and become more efficient in your business. And you're going to drive your business from absorption to return on investment across all aspects of the business. I think the biggest thing that we've probably seen, not for everyone, but in some cases, the personal aspect of not only transitioning your, your, uh, your operation from a dealership to a business, there's that personal aspect, that relational aspect that has been lost. And in some cases, it's been more transactional. This still is a people business, and that's people doing business with people. Customers do not buy product. I believe they buy dealerships. And when you buy a dealership, you're buying a product that not only that the dealer is selling, but also servicing and supporting. And on that particular aspect, the need to be treated on a personal level to be known as Bill, who owns 50 acres, or, or Bob, who has an operation uh, in, in hay, or Joe, the guy that basically is a gentleman farmer on a weekend, that in some cases has been lost. And unfortunately, it has to be regained because it's still business, but it's also a business that are driven by relationships. So how do you think that some of the better dealers these days are maintaining that personal relationship? Is it coming through their, uh, their sales team? Is it coming from the, the dealer principal um, through interactions like social media? What do you consider as being successful in, in this day and age with personal relationships? You know, I think that for me, I think this is an exciting time. And, and the dealers, dealers today have more access to data, information, training, support, and resources, not just from one organization or one particular source from not only their manufacturer relationship that they partner with, dealer associations, farm shows, et cetera, uh, events, 
And what, what I think the dealers, the dealers that take the challenge in taking and making the time to take advantage of these opportunities to really stay on top of running single or multiple store operations and to be able to grasp all those elements, they're the ones that are reaping the benefits. And so I would say that the dealers who are staying invested and staying informed and hiring the best people that they can and take full advantage of all these things that not only the manufacturer offers and support, but these events, they're learning that running a business is really not a transactional particular state, but a relational state based on experience. And when you look at a customer, dealers that look at a customer, not just at the point of sale, but as an advocate after the sale that can go out and represent your brand to not only their community and promote your store because of the experience that they've had with you at every touch point. Those are the dealers who understand how to basically be sustainable, be viable, and be relevant in today's competitive marketplace. Because anyone can buy a tractor, but not everyone can deliver an experience at every touch point from the sales, service support, and resale. And those, those are the things that dealers have to grasp, and those are the things that dealers are grasping who have been successful to do that very well. And I know you've worked with dealers for many years on, on a lot of those topics. What do you consider, you know, looking back on your career with Mahindra and, and with other manufacturers, what are you most proud of? What would you consider your highlights? Lynn, I, this is a great question. And, and I've been blessed to enjoy many highlights. Uh, and I, I'm going to basically break them down from each of the, the manufacturers I've worked with. And I would say at John Deere, leading a strong, small tractor business and creating a new, innovative, and holistic strategy that completely changed the game in the small tractor market and it was eventually adopted by other business units in the organization was the highlight of John Deere. With New Holland, uh, creating the Hay Tool strategy and taking that strategy from ideation, inception to implementation. And our goal was to become number one in Hay Tools market share in North America. And we took an integrated disruptive approach and we were able to achieve that particular goal. At Mahindra, being the first business to be inducted into the Mahindra Hall of Fame for our business performance, brand excellence and impact in the industry by growing our revenue seven times and taking market share from number six to number three. And lastly, I would say uh, eight years uh, being rated by the Equipment Dealers Association as number one in marketing and advertising by our dealers also is truly an honor and an honor that is hard earned because it was given to us by our dealers. So those are just some of the highlights that uh, really, uh, that brings a big smile to my face, but also I'm honored to have and, and then humbled by as well. Okay, good. And, and when you have a, a career that really spans manufacturers and, and years, there's always things that, that don't work or that would have been, might've been done differently. Anything when you look back, um, on something that just wasn't the success that you thought it should be or um, that you wish you would have taken a different path? You know, I think it's um, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm not an armchair quarterback, but I do believe in postmortem. So you need to always look at a project, an initiative or strategy and understand not just what went, what went well, but what went wrong. And that's when you have your, your, your best learnings. And so, you know, if you're fortunate like me to be in this business long enough, you're going to have many failures. 
and I've had them. But I've learned to embrace those failures over the years, and I've learned mildly from them. But as I think about this question, I have to say that the biggest failures uh, has been around centered on providing clarity of communication that's consistent of clarity in my communication and alignment, as well as going full scale on an execution of a of an idea or a project or or a uh, initiative and not taking a small scale approach first from a pilot to really have a control group to learn. Those are some of the things that have been things that I probably should have learned a lot earlier in my career and I was fortunate to learn later. But as I said earlier, I think it's important that in my failures that many of the initiatives that I've been part of, that ones that have not been successful, it's because of the fact that we're not well connected with our stakeholders in the organization and our dealers outside of the organization before we launch. And it was based on not providing consistent, clear communication and objectives and alignment. And those are the things that have been the biggest lessons for me as I've taken throughout my career. So when you when you talk about that and, and then communicating with dealers, so um, can you explain a little bit more? It, was it a matter of saying, you know, this is a great idea, you all should take it on and, and here's how you're going to do it? Or can you explain a little bit more about how that communication should have been different? Well, one of the things that I've seen and in, in, in with some of the failures in my career is just the assumption that you know the dealer perspective. And the further you're away from the, from the dealer, as I've been able to ascend up the ladder in my career, I feel the less you know. And the less you know is when you should be more susceptible and always reach back to really receive feedback and unfiltered, uh, I want to say, communication from the dealers to understand, first of all, is this initiative an alignment of, of some of the goals that you're looking for? Two, are there any gaps in the execution? Three, is there something that we may have missed as we were looking for this particular objective that's going to help benefit you? That process and gaining input, not just early in the project, but early in the process and continuously along the way as you design and develop initiative, making sure that you have the dealer involved in each of those phases, just as a testing point, because I do believe in trusting but verify, when that hasn't happened, that is when I've seen and experienced the, 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 the biggest failures in my career on, on some of the initiatives that have been basically targeted to support the dealer. And I know manufacturers turn to dealer councils and, and, other, and some of the dealers that they've built relationships with. Um, do you see, though, among dealers that there's not enough of them that, that participate uh, when asked you know, questions? Um, that there's just a limited amount of dealers who are willing to provide that feedback that the manufacturers are looking for? You know, in my experience with dealer advisory council across CNH, John Deere, Mahindra, I, I, first of all, they're vital and very critical to maintain alignment in their sounding board. But the challenge of dealer advisory councils for me is sometimes we approach the dealer advisory council as an event strategy. And how I describe that is this, the only time that we're going to engage is the three or four scheduled meetings that we have 
throughout and plan throughout the year. I think it's important that you have multiple touch points with the dealers and not take the event strategy, but a continuous feedback loop strategy to ensure that the feedback, the communication is coming on many touch points versus three or four. Your other question about whether or not dealers uh, have the time to be involved or if the right dealers or if they're apathetic. The dealer advisory council that I've been involved with have all been very passionate and very representative of the dealer bases that they're out to support and also providing their feedback. The most important thing is for the manufacturer is to create this transparent, this trusted environment of frank discussion in clear exchange where no one feels afraid to share exactly how they feel. When that culture is established, that's when I've seen dealer advisory councils partnering with the manufacturer blossom and really been a value add. But when it doesn't exist, that particular, I call the those, those particular differentiators in, in describing the culture, then I think it becomes less than, than stellar. Right. And, you know, I do hear that from dealers that they, um, that they, they fear, you know, what might happen if they express, you know, some of their um, strong opinions, you know. Um, and I'm not sure, we, you know, you talked about developing that culture of trust. You know, it's, I think it can be difficult because it's a business relationship. And so, you know, from, from the, yeah, from the dealer standpoint, you know, how do they, you know, how can they feel like they can be totally honest and not uh, jeopardize their, their standing with the manufacturer? You know, one of the things that Mahindra that was very successful that we built, and I coined uh, the phrase uh, creating a, a culture around in a business that is driven around a partnership mindset, not a partnership model. But this partnership mindset basically exists and is supported in all the things that we do. And what drives that is really focusing in on win-win in all aspects of our business interactions and connections. Because there are going to be points of disagreement, but it's not the disagreement that we are really focusing on. It is really the areas that we do agree. And that is, for me, the vital connection that really needs to be submitted between a dealer and a manufacturer. And that's what we did at Mahindra. And so what that does is this. It allows you to not really focus in on, uh, again, those areas that are not of, uh, how can I say that, are inconsistent with what we're trying to uh, obtain, but these shared objectives and visions, if you can get to that point, then I think you can truly be, again, an open, transparent, and have frank discussions about not only what is paramount, but as what is essential for a healthy relationship. Because I'll say this, without a business partnership mindset, uh, you are not going to have a mutually beneficial partnership. Because manufacturers, and what I've learned over the years, we do not sell direct to customers in the marketplace. Our dealers do. And for our dealers to represent the brand and be successful in selling services and supporting the marketplace, then we need to understand what's vital to them. But in return, the dealers also need to understand what's vital to us so that we can focus in on one goal. How do we create 
and build your brand to be best represented in the marketplace that's going to allow you to be profitable and for us to be profitable. And for me, that's a win-win. When you can gain clarity and alignment around what we agree on, I think that's the only way for a successful relationship or partnership to begin and to be sustained focusing on those particular areas. So far, Cleo Franklin has talked about how data can help drive dealerships forward, why manufacturers and dealers need to trust each other, and offered an honest analysis of his own relationships with dealers. We continue our discussion looking at the integration of brick and mortar and click and mortar. So if we look at then, you know, what's far ahead, maybe looking at the industry, you know, 10 or 15 years, you know, there's already been so many changes in, in how um, business is, is conducted, you know, how consumers are, are purchasing, um, you know, pressure from manufacturers to find all kinds of um, distribution methods and, uh, you know, the online influence, you know, where do you see this idea of a, of a dealership, of a, a brick and mortar dealership? in you know 15 years how how do you see dealers you know surviving and but still taking advantage of new technology you know what do you see well i i believe in in having two platforms for a dealer i think the equipment relationship and the equipment exchange is, is again highly complex but highly relational. It's not a business transaction, but a business transaction that is not without its complexities. But I also know that the not being able to have a brick and mortar, but a click and mortar, a digital footprint, because 88% of, of people that shop uh, go online before, and not only to go online, but to be informed and educated about your dealership before they would even darken the door of a dealership. So you need to have a strong business model that is based on providing a good experience and meeting the customer needs on the web and at the store. Because you can't buy a tractor, demo a tractor physically in a three-dimensional world on the web. You have to go to the store and you have to exchange with the dealer. So for the future and in today, I don't see that changing. Dealer has to have as strong of a presence on the web that provides a good experience and also at the store to be able to inform, educate, and support their customers. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this particular perspective. They're both interconnected. They both can coexist, and they both support the requirements of the customer because customers can access, gain, information anywhere, anytime on their phones. And today that didn't exist 20 years ago. But if I'm searching for equipment purchases or a new tractor and I go on the phone and I search your dealership and I have a, a bad brand experience on the phone with your website, you will not be in my consideration set. When you may have this killer experience at your store that is robust and rigorous, you have to basically be in both places and be both places in a very relevant, compelling way. And last, at those particular points, brick and mortar and click and mortar, you must always survey and ask the customer, why did you come to us? How well were we able to provide your needs? And what could we have done differently? So having brick and mortar business model, click and mortar business model, 
in a feedback loop that really gives you an opportunity at a real-time perspective to understand whether or not your model is meeting the customer's needs, I think are vital elements to be sustainable, not just today, but 15, 15 10 to 15 years from now. I know data, you had talked about the uh, you know, the trust, but also verify, and, and data is so important uh, for dealerships and, and seeing what's working. Um, what about some changes there? Are there any metrics that um, dealers need to be paying more attention to now that maybe they weren't, uh, uh, or, you know, that they weren't even considering, you know, when you st- first started in the industry? Any any changes on that on the data and management side of, of real equipment dealerships? You know, dealers, um, informed dealers today, as I talked about with dealer consolidation and transitioning from being good dealers to, to uh, good business people, there's multiple metrics. And there's metrics that are driven by which department. Uh, whether we're talking about the, the uh, lead generation rate uh, ratio at the um, sales level or the close rate, or from a service department billing efficiency, or for the total overall health of the bill of the dealership absorption, I think there's a couple of metrics that are important that I would share with dealers. One metric would be without question referral, brand referral. Am I willing to refer you to a customer, family member, or friend? Dealers should know this. Always and utmost and foremost. That for me gives me a good insight that my business is meeting the needs of my, of my customers. Over 40% of customers in this business are going to purchase on word of mouth. And that's your referral. If you're not measuring that, if you don't have an understanding of, of your referral rate or loyalty rate, I think that's gonna be a huge blind spot for you. And so for me, that is one of the biggest, biggest metrics that I think a dealer needs to understand. I don't think it's talked about. I don't know if a lot of people are looking at it, but it's one that I track and one that I value greatly. And then also looking, you know, at the future and um, you had talked about the, the click and mortar, but still the, the brick and mortar. You know, what are you um, maybe just taking a, a step back um, from your role and working directly with dealers, what, what do you see overall as the most exciting things for the industry? Um, is it related to, you know, different types of um, uh, powered equipment, uh, you know, battery power or um, uh, things related to, you know, data and user interface? You know, where do you see as the most exciting? For me, the most exciting is, is access to information and data and and on a real time basis and turning that into uh, turning that data and information to something that you can act on and take action with there's so much information uh, that is available for us today uh, in so many different ways uh, on a real time basis that didn't exist before so no different than whether or not you're farming or or, or selling products to a customer and, and, and asking for a survey how i did being able to to be in tune with real-time data allows you to become more agile and shift and turn your business on a dime. And I think that's what's important. And I'm, I'm talking at a very high level. That's not going to change. And any dealership that's able to command data on a real-time basis, based on every transaction, based on every touch point, 
I think is, is, is not only going to be in a leadership role and command in the market, but for me, that's what's very exciting about where this industry has come and where it's going. And so staying on top of things with being able to, to use that information and have access to it and, and take action on a real-time basis, I think is, is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. Okay, and, and as you, you know, stay connected to the industry, but also end, exit it in a, uh, in a way as well, you know, how would you like uh, to be viewed by dealers and, and, and others that you've worked with? No, that's a great question, Lynn, and I, and I have two answers because it's really not for me to decide as it's rather for those who have worked with me throughout my career to decide and offer their their honest, unsolicited opinions of, of how they view me. But I would say I would like to be viewed, and I would think dealers would say this as a business leader and executive who was accessible and approachable and less concerned about my position, but more interested in the position of a dealer every time we had an interaction. And that's something that I've always been passionate about. I, I always believe that, and as someone who's come up through the ranks and, and had several touch points at many different level of dealers that, as I stated earlier, the farther you're away from the field and the dealer, the less you know. So I've, I've never trusted um, not so much trust, but I do trust, but I verify and, and I've always made sure I stay connected with dealers. So, so which I ensured I visited dealers monthly and contacted them regularly every week. So I can always count on them to give me an unfiltered view of what's happening. So I would like to be remembered. I think Ana Mahindra, I owe a lot of gratitude. I am very blessed to have been given the confidence by him to lead a lot of his organizations and initiatives. But as he said, uh, Cleo was engaged, connected, and authentic. So engaged, connected, and authentic is how I like to be viewed. Okay. Is there anything that, you know, that we haven't talked about that you wanted to, um, you know, share with, share with dealers? I would say that this is a, this is an exciting time for dealers. And I think it's all about perspective I think today is time that is going to be critical that they find as much alignment as they possibly can with the partner that they're the partners and manufacturers because there's something about mutual benefit and with consolidation with increased competition uh, everyone is going to be driven to partner and as I stated earlier, you find the things that you agree on. And if you can develop a shared vision and, and objectives, those agreements are going to really drive a pathway of a great partnership that are going to take their businesses to the next level. So I think the future is bright, although there's challenges, but no one is successful alone and partnering is going to be the way to go. And finding the right partner is even more critical as you move your way forward. Yeah, and I and Lynn, I'd say, you know, there's, you know, the successful dealers I've seen have looked for ways to partner not just with the manufacturer but within their communities, whether it's with the local, um, uh, I want to say, uh, animal feed shop, Perina, or if there is a another organization where they've had some synergies, 
people that the dealerships and the businesses that understand that your customer that shops at my dealer also shops at your location as well. That in addition to finding ways to partner with uh, the manufacturer exists today. And for me at the local level, uh, whether it's corporate uh, social responsibility events, charitable events, making sure that you partner with things that are very important to the community. And that goes beyond trading tractors for dollars, but things that people really care about will give dealers a leg up to stay relevant in the market in many ways than just being a great equipment dealer. Clio's final comments can serve as a challenge for dealers. Look for alignment and look for partnerships with your manufacturers, other local businesses, customers, and fellow dealers. These relationships can open up opportunities that you won't find going it alone. Stay tuned for additional podcasts from our experts and dealers. Our podcast is now available on Spotify. It can also be found on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. And if you're not yet a subscriber to our print or digital content, head on over to RuralLifestyleDealer.com and join our community. From all of us at Rural Lifestyle Dealer, I'm Lynn Wolf, and thanks for listening.